All right, Esther chapter 4 is where we find ourselves tonight. Esther chapter 4. We pick it up where we left off last time. So let's go before the Lord in prayer, and we'll pick it up there in verse 1. Father, now as we come before you, Lord, we ask that you would just move um, by your Spirit in our hearts and our midst, Lord, and may we learn uh, all that you want to reveal to us uh, tonight through the story of Esther, Lord. We thank you for it, Lord. We ask you to bless this time, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, we left off last time with, um, with Haman... Uh, having this dastardly plan to kill all the Jews. And, uh, you know, again, I have some pictures tonight, and there's one up there right now that you can kind of see. Is, um, just gives us a little idea. So they're just kind of little idea pictures maybe to help you, put you, set the mood for you. But remember, Mordecai would not show respect to Haman, who was appointed to be the second in command over the whole Persian Empire. So... Somehow, in some way, the king, you know, uh, declared that he should uh, be shown respect in some way, and Mordecai didn't do it. And the only thing we can really think of is the fact that there was something about it that really went opposed to what he believed probably was in the Ten Commandments, you know, first about, uh, you know, not putting other, other things before God. So maybe they were reverencing in a way that made him more of an idol than it did, uh, you know, something to be worshipped rather than a person. But it, again, it doesn't tell us, but we talked about that last time. And if you want to hear a little bit more about that civil disobedience, then you can look at that. But he wouldn't do it for, for a reason. And again, it wasn't a big deal because Haman didn't really even notice until somebody said something to him uh, and, and said, hey, hey, you know, Mordecai's not bowing. And that's when he noticed. So obviously it wasn't some big thing in your face. But Haman just began to just really eat away at him, burning with anger and wanted retaliation. And man, he was, even though he was number two in the whole empire, had it all, uh, as we'll see, you know, just had it all, still not happy with having it all. And he just can't, you know, can't sleep. And it was just bothering him, kind of like the princess in the pea fairy tale, you know. The little pea just drove him nuts, Mordecai. And uh, it wasn't enough for him just to kill Mordecai. He wanted to go uh, go after all the Jews, which, again, makes it seem like what Mordecai was doing uh, had more to do with his his Jewish faith than, than anything else. And so he wanted to do that. And he convinced the king, amazingly enough, and it seems very easily, to put to death, and I don't know, some people put it at 15 million people of Jews in the total empire. I think that's kind of high, but it's the only number I've heard. So, uh, you know, whatever that number is, however many million Jews there were in the whole Persian empire, because remember, pretty much all the Jews lived someplace in the Persian Empire. Now we know Joshua and Zerubbabel are already back in Jerusalem and in, in, in Judah and they're rebuilding the temple and all that is going on. So uh, there's, there's a number of Jews at least back in, in the land as well. And he writes this decree, you know, uh, to uh, allow them to be put to death. And of course he appeals to everybody's greed by saying, and whoever you kill, you can keep all their stuff. 
Now remember this is, you know, men, women, children, babies, old people, everybody was supposed to be put to death. Wiping out a whole a group of people, a whole race of people, we would say today. And uh, again, the end of chapter 3 tells us that Haman and the king just sat down to drink, but everybody else was just overwhelmed by the decree. Now, remember, it went out in every language, to every leader, and then to, it was decreed to all the people in every area in their language. So everybody knew about this. And... Um, you know, everybody was just blown away by this. And I imagine a lot of them were thinking, you know, if, if the king can do this and Haman can do this with one group of people, well, he could do it with us too. And I imagine that, that was some of the thinking for some of the, you know, the smaller uh, and certainly some of the other races that were part of his kingdom and people groups. They, you know, realized that if he could do this, he could do that to us. And so there was a, just an overwhelming sense of incredible awe of how horrible this is through all the people. And then we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 4, and it says, When Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. So Mordecai comes to hear this, and, and you know he was a scribe, so maybe he was even had some of the the job at you know it's to even write some of this down or maybe even translate it. It doesn't tell us, but when he hears about it or reads it, you know he is overwhelmed. And as we see in the Bible, you know these signs are signs of mourning. Uh, you know the. Touring his, touring his clothes, putting on sackcloth. I just think of a sack of potatoes, you know, that kind of burlap bag would just be an itchy feeling. Some, some uh, scholars think, you know, was translated was um, like a camel skin worn inside out or something, something that's just really miserable to wear. And of course, he's crying and, um, you know, putting ashes on their heads. Again, it's a great sign of mourning. And he's crying out bitterly as he's kind of like, dumbfoundedly wandering through the streets of Susa, the capital there. Um, at this point, he's not afraid to let to everybody to let him to let him know that he was a Jew. Uh, you know, he had told Esther, "Don't to let anybody know that you're Jewish." Uh, it seems like he had kept it a secret, but at this point, it seems like you know that doesn't matter. He's letting everybody know that, you know, he's going to be personally affected by this and he's not afraid to let everybody know that he was a Jew. And so we can see the mourning that that this decree caused to happen. We talked about last time that this would happen in the first month of the year. So just think of it of our January. And it was written that the decree this would take place in December. So you have 12 months before this would actually take place as we talked about last time. And so uh, we read that that's going on. He is crying and wearing these sackcloth and everything has ashes on. And then verse 2 says, He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. So he shows up to, you know, where he's... um, you know, normally hung out, as we talked last time, when his daughter, which really was his cousin, but he raised her as his own daughter, uh, Esther, 
he was kind of promoted and he hung out at the King's Gate. And that was like the who's who of the empire, obviously. But when they, you know, when they saw Mordecai walking up with all the sackcloth on, I imagine the guards said, hey, you can't come here like this. You can't wear this at the, you know, at the King's Gate. So, um, again, um, they just wouldn't let him come to a, a, the place dressed like that. The king didn't want to have anybody showing mourning or any of that kind of thing. You know, I'm in charge. Everybody should be happy kind of a, a deal. So they just didn't let him in uh, that place. And verse 3 tells us, And in every province where, province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So now we, we see what was happening with Mordecai and him in the city, and then the scene kind of widens out here, and we see that the Jews that were scattered, you know, from the Babylonian uh, captivities, and they went there three times, and even from the Assyrians who had come to the northern group of Jews earlier, you know, they had spread them out in that whole empire. They were spread out, and when they hear about this, um, you know, everybody is obviously weeping and going around with sackcloth and just devastated. I think it's hard for us to imagine what the death sentence would feel like. You know, I, I just, I think, you know, when we read this, sometimes it's so far from us, it's kind of hard to picture. But just look around at your family or think of your family and just think, you know, they have the death sentence and I, maybe that'll get us some mindset of how they felt. Um, you know, that in 12 months time or probably a little less by, by this time, you know, we're all going to be dead. Everybody I know in my family, everybody I'm related to, aunts, uncles, cousins, nieces and nephews, grandparents, you know, all those are just going to be gone and dead. It's just, it's kind of hard to picture that. But uh, when we think in those terms a little bit, maybe we get some idea, you know, of this great mourning. But again, notice one thing we don't see here at all is we don't see any prayer. We don't see anybody seeking the Father. We don't hear about anybody going to the temple and seeking God, as he said to do. Um, uh, we don't see them seeking for a word from his prophets. The things that we normally would see, in, particularly in the Old Testament, what they would do in times of great distress even if they weren't really walking with the Lord, you know, when all these things came down, there was generally at least some of the people, and even sometimes almost all the people, you know, would do some of those, if not more. You know, they would pray, they would go seek, you know, the Father, they'd go to the temple, they would just, you know, pray and ask for Him to, to lead them or send a prophet or something along those lines, but we don't see any of that in these all these scattered realms, it's just, um, you know, these scattered people had really lost touch with worshiping the Lord and obeying His voice. And as we said in the book, of, you know, again, and I think we said every time, you know, there is no mention of prayer. There is no mention of, uh, of God at all. You know, no mentions the name of the Lord. No mentions of the temple or seeking Him or any of that. 
you know, or speaking to prophets or, or prophets speaking, nothing like that at all, because they'd really lost touch, again, with worshiping the Lord and hearing his voice. But they, he did not forsake them. And again, that's something that we need to see here in this book over and over again, even though they were faithless, our Heavenly Father was faithful. And he is not going to forsake them, as, we'll, as again, as we'll see. But they're overwhelmed, and you can imagine why, and maybe picture that a little bit in your own mind. And then verse 4 tells us, So Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her, And the queen was deeply distressed. Then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and to take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, whom he had appointed to attend her, and she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. Now, it goes to show how insulated Esther was from all this. I mean, she wasn't even aware of what was going on. The whole kingdom, certainly the Jews, are, are, are mortified and, and, you know, just overwhelmed with great sorrow and wonderment. And others, too, it says, you know, it told us in chapter 3 that they were just in, they couldn't believe this was going on. Um, and she's not aware of any of it. And it seems like, you know, um, you know, they, they, they came and told him that, you know, Mordecai is, is, you know, in sackcloth and ashes, and she doesn't seem to understand what that meant. And she just hears basically that Mordecai is her, her dad for practical purposes, was just kind of chronically underdressing maybe. I, I, you know, we don't know what she was thinking, but she sends him clothes, right? Hey, you can't wear that, you know, you're connected with me, I'm the queen, uh, you know, here, here's some clothes. But he won't put them on. And so when they sent message back to, to, to Esther, you know, she says, okay, I, I better send this guy, uh, Hathach, to find out what's going on. Why isn't he you know, dressing right? Why is he acting in this weird way? And what's going on with him? So again, just shows you how insulated she was from everything going on in the kingdom. Um, so she sends this man to find out what's going on. And it says, verse 6, So uh, Hathach went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in front of the king's gate. Verse 7 says, And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury to destroy the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him and to plead before him for her people." So Hathach returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. So she sends this guy down here, and you know, as a picture, maybe gives you some idea. She gets the 411 from uh, Mordecai, what's going on here, and then, you know, he kind of tells him what happened. And notice in verse 7, he tells him even the sum of money that Hamath, or Haman, I'm sorry, promised to pay into the king's treasury to kill the Jews. Now, 
as far as we know, that wasn't public information because the king eventually said, oh, don't worry about it. I'll just pay for it. I got enough money. Don't, you, know, you don't need to pay for it. We'll, we'll just take care of it. And so it kind of makes us think that Mordecai was in there writing or at least translating or overheard what you know, Haman was doing. It kind of gives us a sense that he knew that. Um, so, again, that's why I said that. But so he also has a copy of the decree and he tells Hatchich, maybe who couldn't read, I don't know, and he explains it to him, and then he hands it to him and says, give it to her and tell her all that's going on and what she really needs to do. You know, we got the death sentence on us. You know, Jews, we have the death sentence on us, and it's coming from this guy, Haman. He even offered to pay it all, to, to put us all to death, and here it is in writing. Go talk to her. You know, she needs to talk to her hubby and uh, get this all straightened out because we have the death sentence uh, on our heads. Well, he goes back, verse 10, and then Esther spoke to Hathach and gave him a command for Mordecai. Verse 11, all the king's servants and all the people of the king's province know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court uh, to the king who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death, except the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter, that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go in to the king these 30 days. So Esther gets the message, uh, you know, from Hatchich and says, what's going on? She probably reads the decree. She knows what's going on. She heard from him that Mordecai had asked to... Uh, you know, to plead with her, with the king, her husband, uh, you know, to spare his, to spare their, you know, her and, and her people. And so she answers back, okay, that's all well and good, but you don't know what you're really asking me, Mordecai. You don't really know what you're asking. You just don't go up and show up to the king uninvited or you'll lose your head. Um, you know, it, nobody shows up uninvited. Now, I imagine this was mostly probably to keep down assassins and, and, and to weed out any potential assassins, assassins that might come in. You know, if you had people in and out, going in and out, you know, somebody could easily, you know, try to make, uh, make an attempt on the king's life. So if you weren't on the roster uh, of, you know, the schedule of being there that day, or if they, you weren't coming there as a result of being summoned, then you showed up in there. That was it. They would probably just put you to death. Now they did have an exception. He could take his, you know, his his staff, his stick, his uh, you know, you know, his um, scepter made out of gold. Then he could, you know, touch you with it, or you know, point at you, and touch you with you, and then you know the guards would back down. I imagine they had, you know, all their swords at the person's throat. <laughs> you know, as soon as they 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 stepped in the, the you know the the room where his throne room was. And so she said, I don't know if you're aware of that, Mordecai, but that's the law that, you know, everybody knows. It's pretty clear that if you show up there unannounced, uninvited, it's the death sentence. And not only, now there is an exception, and okay, that, let's say, you know, that exception could possibly happen, but I want you to know this fact. I haven't seen the king for a month. 
I, I haven't seen him for a whole month, and I don't know when I'm going to see him again. He hasn't called me. I haven't seen him. It's been a whole month. So I don't even know where I stand with the guy. Uh, you know, it's not like I see him every night. It's not like what we do in our marriages. You come home at night or, you know, even if you work an, an odd job where you're away for a period of time, you know, you're calling or FaceTiming or whatever. But, you know, that's not like that. I spent a month and I have no idea when he's going to call me again. And, you know, uh, am I still important to him? I don't know. Did he find somebody else that he liked better? Could be. I mean, after all, she, he's got hundreds of women in his harem. And so maybe, you know, I'm on the outs with him. Maybe he found somebody he likes better. I have no idea. But not seeing him for a month isn't a good sign. And basically what she's saying is you, you have no idea what you're asking me. It's probably almost a certain, it's a death sentence, at least in her mind, it's a death sentence, you know, to, to go in there. She's, you know, that's, that's probably it. You know, if he likes somebody else, he got rid of Vashti, he could get rid of me. I mean, you know, I, that could be all, all over. And, and in her mind, she was pretty much, you know, giving up her life if she showed up. And she wanted Mordecai to know that. And so... The words are given to Mordecai, and verse 12 tells us this. So they told Mordecai Esther's words, and Mordecai told them to answer Esther. And I think these are the, probably some of the greatest words in the whole book here. Do not think that in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And again, up on the screen, that, that's, you know, that, that verse to me is um, you know, one of the greatest uh, and probably the, maybe the most, you know, spiritual, um, you know, uh, closest thing we'll see to a statement of faith in, in the book of Esther, I really think here. You know, that's, you know, verse 14, uh, you know, really shows that Mordecai did have some faith. And, you know, he, he basically tells her, yeah, you're, you know, you think if you go in there, it's going to be off with your head. But don't forget you're already under a death sentence. Don't think just because you're in the palace and you're the queen that you're going to be exempt from this. So, yes, you think you're risking your life going in there, and let's say that's true, but the bottom line is your life is already, you know, at risk because of what's, what the declaration is going to happen. You know, you're to be put to death at the end of the year as well, in the 12th month. So don't think you're in a safe place in the palace. They're going to come from you come for you too. And, you know, I, again, I like that um, great statement of faith here, uh, you know, that Mordecai does believe in, obviously, some of the promises of God to spare the Jews. You know, he is to keep the, the Jews as a people because of his promises and of his plans. 
Remember he had told um, Abraham way back when in Genesis 12, you know, I'll bless those that bless you and curse those who curse you as a people. And, you know, Mordecai knew of those words. He knew of the promises of God to bring the Messiah in through the Jewish people and to keep them as a people, all his promises that they wouldn't be, you know, wiped out completely. And so, you know, he, he believes that God is going to step in at some point, even though he doesn't directly say that. Um, he's going to spare us, save us, that much is true. But the question going back to Esther is from Mordecai, are you willing to be used? Are you willing to be used? If not, the Lord's not out of options. You know, it doesn't end with you. His plans and his purposes don't end when we refuse to, to respond and allow him to use us in whatever circumstance or situation he chooses. There's just no way. We, we, you know, we're not the last one and the only hope and everything dies and falls apart if something happens to us or if we're not obedient, you know, it's, it's not all on our back. In fact, I like this quote. Um, I'll, I'll put it up there. Oops, I got it out of order there. It says, Mordecai reminded Esther that though the fate of God's people rested in God and not in her, her own fate depended on her own faithfulness to God. I like that, you know. Uh, the fate of God's people rests on him and not on her, but her fate depended on her own faithfulness to God. And I think that's so important to see and understand and what Esther certainly needed to understand. Uh, after all, Esther, think about how you really got to this position. I mean, how do you really think you got to be queen in the whole Persian Empire? Do you think it was all by chance? You know, Mordecai would say, Esther, honey, do you really think that, why, why was Vashti dethroned? Are, you know, and why were you chosen over everybody else in the empire? Why do you think you are there? You are here for this purpose. So don't run or hide from the calling of God in your life. Um, again, we just need to remember that as believers, we need to be really firm in that. You know, that uh, our Father leads us and guides us into the places and the positions that He has for us. And, you know, the question shouldn't be so much, why am I here? Or why did you allow this to happen? Or why did, am I, is this going on? Or why is this not happening? Or this not going on, you know, when we get on those things, and that's typically our questions, but, you know, the, rather our hearts should say, you know, well, Lord, I'm here. How do you want to use me? You've led me to this point. What do you want me to do? How, how wh why, why am I here? Uh, what purposes am I here for, to accomplish for you? What do you want me to do now that I'm here? Or this is not happening, and I kind of hoped all this was going to happen. Okay, so it's not going on. So, okay, obviously, Lord, you have something else for me. What do you have for me? It's all too easy for me and maybe for you just to complain why it is or it isn't happening rather than saying, okay, Lord, you've brought me here. You want to use me. You lead and guide me. It's not all chance and random circumstances and things that happen kind of randomly as most people think you know 
you know, some people believe in maybe some kind of karma or some sort of yin and yang thing. And there's all kinds of crazy theories out there. But, you know, we need to be firm in the fact that we know that he leads us and guides us and is intimately involved in the lives of his children. And he has a purpose and a calling for us. And we don't want to run or hide from those things. We just can't turn our backs on God's call and purpose. If we do, it's really to our own harm. But it will not stop God's work and salvation. He'll just use another source. That's what Mordecai is saying to Esther. And quite frankly, that's what he does in our lives. But, you know, it's, it's not going to stop his work. He's going to use somebody else, but it's going to be to our own harm. And again, this principle is so important, you know, for us to remember. God promotes or puts us in a place for a reason. And we need, you know, the courage and the wisdom to see that reason and to walk in it. And that's exactly what Mordecai is saying to his uh, daughter Esther. And like one more quote on that subject by Spurgeon. I like that just to make us think a little bit more. He says, I believe that in dark times, God is making lamps with which to remove the gloom. Martin Luther is sitting by his father's hearth in the forest when the Pope is selling his wicked indulgences. He will come out soon and stop the crowing of the, peak, uh, stop the, crowing of the cock of the Romanish Christ-denying Peter. John Calvin is quietly studying when false doctrine is most rife, and he will be heard of at Geneva. So he'll be heard of at Geneva at some point. So again, um, during dark times, you know, he's using a couple of examples from history here, and I like that. You know, at some point you look at Martin Luther, you know, and his life, and he's there in Germany and with his dad and you know, as it says here, it doesn't look like much, but God's going to use him to, you know, post the 94th thesis on the Wittenberg Castle door. You know, all the things that are wrong with the, what the church was doing at that time and, you know, ushering in Protestantism, if you would. And same with Calvin, another guy seemingly not doing much, but God's going to use him in a great way. And again, that's just true with us as well. It's seemingly maybe at some point we don't seem like much or it's insignificant or we just seem to be, you know, not involved in this or that or whatever. But we have to trust that he has a plan and a purpose and wants to use us and continue to use us. And maybe it's in preparation, the season we're in, or maybe it's in using us in that situation uh, that we wouldn't have been in, uh, you know, if, if we were to design things and work things out. Just need to be faithful. And as it said, need the courage and wisdom to see the reason and to walk in it. Well, back to our story here. That's Esther's or Mordecai's response to Esther. And so she responds to this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me, neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. Also, I will go to the king, which is against the law. <laughs> and if I perish, 
I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. So you got to love this. Here's Esther's response. Okay, you're right. I'll do it. I'll answer the call. But if I, you know, I'm, I'm breaking the law. <laughs> She's still throwing in there. But you got to admire if I die, I die. You know, um, wow, I just really don't think she was, she thought in her own mind that she would make it. Uh, you know, in her own, own mind, thinking it's been a month, I must not be pleasing to him. You know, not to see me for a whole month is just crazy. So he must not, I must be on the outs. He found somebody better or this or that. And he doesn't even remember me, maybe. I don't know what, you know, the mind can do in a place like that. And she, by her tone, she just really believed that, you know, she wouldn't get a sentence out before she was just put to death. But notice she was willing to go. She was willing to do it, even with that heavy pressure and that heavy heart of, I don't think I'm going to make it, but Lord, if that's what you want, that's what I'm going to do. And may I say this to us as well, uh, may we be willing to as well. But you don't know what that's going to cost me. You don't know how it could affect me. You don't know what that's going to do for me at work or in the family or with these people or with that situation or this or that. You don't know what it's going to do. And I can't help but to look back at a story like this and say, well, do you feel like there's a good chance you're going to die if you do that? <laughs> and I think most of us have to answer pretty honestly, at least in our day and age, at least at this time, that no, it's not life or death. They may hate us, they might fire us, they might demote us, they might, you know, cause problems, but life or death, probably not hanging in the balance. And she was willing to do it. The Lord records this for us, encourages us uh, to be faithful and leave the consequences to Him. Just answer the calls, what the Lord's reminding us and telling us tonight. Well, we're going to crack into ch chapter 5 here just a little bit. So, between the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, the three days passed. And so, verse 1 says, Now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house. And while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house, facing the entrance of the house. So it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight, and the king held out uh, to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. And then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. Now can we all just let out a collective sigh of relief? <sighs> you can imagine her trying to put on her makeup, although she probably had somebody else do it. You know, get my best dress, fix my hair perfect, you know, put the crown on the way it should be. I just want to look as perfect and as beautiful as I can, uh, like on my wedding day. So when he sees me, you know, he's going to remember what he's missing and who he married. And, uh, you know, so she, I can imagine she was sweating bullets. Like she probably couldn't put on enough deodorant. <laughs> Not that they had deodorant in those days, but you know what I'm saying? Enough on there. She was probably just melting with, you know, sweat. But she goes out there 
and she walks there and he sees her and Esther is shown favor. It's okay, honey. And imagine she's like, oh, you know, that's a great start. And she kind of walks up and, you know, allows the, uh, you know, she touches the scepter to finalize the it's okay to be here kind of thing. And she went up and to him and touched it because he had held it out to her. And, uh, you know, okay, great, I'm here. But there's so much more I need to do. This is just only the beginning to stop this plot that wants to put my whole family and everybody that's Jewish to death. Well, let's see how the king responds, verse 3. And the king said to her, What do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. I love that. She was willing to be used by the Lord at great risk. And look how far open the door was flung. You know, it's just flung wide open. And, and you know, okay, well, how's he going to respond to my request, you know, and all this and still got to all go down. I, I made it this far and I don't know what's going to happen next. You know, like, what are you doing here? What do you want? You know, he could have that kind of attitude. Like, why are you bothering me, you know? Uh, you know, it doesn't have that at all. He's like, oh, Queen Vashti, right? W what do you want? I'll, I'll give you half of my kingdom. And basically what he's saying, you can have anything you want. Y you know, uh, you want to see me at the risk of your own life. I know that. What do you want? I, I love that. He, he sees that this is so important. She's willing to, to risk her life to go see him. And he just pretty much says, whatever you want, you're going to get. And I just, you know, again, see the great work of God uh, through all this and, and, and for all this. And so Esther's response then to the king is, verse 4, So Esther answered, If it pleases the king... Let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Now you might say, wait a minute, that wasn't the plan, right? She's supposed to start saying, hey, um, you know, Haman uh, sent this decree out. Did you know I'm Jewish? And that means I'm going to be put to death and he wants to kill all the Jews. That's part of my family. And can you stop all that? I mean, that's what I would think you know, would go down. But Esther knows it's not the right time to speak to the king about this matter. It would have put him in a difficult place, right? The king would have had to say, um, you know, uh, make a decision right there, uh, you know, and, and hear, okay, what's going on with this and what's going on with that and why is this going on and all this kind of stuff. And then have to make some sort of decision. You know, Haman was the number two guy. He was well liked by the king. He made him in that position. He, he elevated him up from whatever position he had, you know, and probably came up through the ranks to some degree. And, you know, the king had a lot of respect and felt maybe a lot of loyalty towards Haman. And he just didn't want to, you know, throw, she didn't want to throw that on the king. And plus, there was probably many people in that court right there in the king's throne room who supported Haman. I mean, a guy doesn't get to be number two in 
and the greatest empire and the most powerful empire at that time, you know, without having a lot of friends and connections, right? So he probably had a lot of friends and backing in that throne room as well. And so Amon, you know, waits and invites him uh, and Haman to a party so that she could, you know, tell all about her and what's going on in a completely different setting. And again, um, I, I think Esther was very brave in asking the accuser to come too, you know, face to face and not behind his back. That's a tough thing to do. I mean, that, that's a lot of, that's a very brave thing to do. Most people will say, well, I, I, I don't want him there because he's going to, you know, say his piece and it could water down what I want to say. She doesn't do that. You know, she's willing to say, Let, let's, you know, bring him in as well. And, you know, she's going to, make her plea face to face. And of course, we see God working through all this and we'll see as we pick it up next time, him working through all these circumstances and the situation and, and uh, you know, God putting everything together, even the little pieces of a dinner. Most of us wouldn't give a second thought to having, you know, a, a few people over for dinner or going out for dinner somewhere or going to somebody's place for dinner, right? You think, you know, what, how, what, what kind of a deal is that? How could that be anything? But we can see just in the smallest detail, our Heavenly Father is involved in the lives of His people. And, uh, you know, He is leading and guiding us each day, each hour, each minute He's involved. And as we said, a lot of times, you know, some things just look like they just all kind of fall into place or all things just kind of happen naturally, but they're supernaturally natural, if you would. Um, you know, they're, they're not hitting you in the, the forehead. It's just the Lord working through all these circumstances to move us and, and to place us in, into where he has us, to use us uh, however he sees fit. You see... You know, that's the importance and why we stress so much. It's a relationship that our Heavenly Father wants us to have, that He gave us through what Jesus did by His death on the cross, paying for our sins, now put us into the family of God, and we have this personal and intimate relationship with Him. And that's really what a relationship is. It's a constant thing. And, you know, it's day in and day out, hour in, hour out, minute in, you know, it's, all, it's dynamic. It's always happening. And people that have this idea that, well, I'll give the Lord, you know, an hour on Sunday or it's a couple hours on Sunday. I do the church thing or the religious thing and I do that. But I kind of have my own life most all the other times. And the reality of it is, that's not what the Lord wants. He doesn't want a couple hours a week or even five or six hours a week. What He desires to have with His people and His children is a constant relationship that's dynamic, that's happening at all hours of the day and the night, every day. You know, sometimes you can't sleep at night. And, uh, you know, I think it's always a good thing to say, okay, Lord, why do you have me up here? Is there a reason that I'm not being able to sleep? You know, most of the time we get frustrated. Ah, you look at the clock, it's 3.15. Then you look again, it's like 3.16. And it felt like you'd have been awake for eight hours or something. And you get frustrated. And then you fall asleep and it's 4 o'clock. And then, you know, and I don't know about you, but I can get really frustrated. Most of us can. But, you know, the Lord has a dynamic relationship. Okay, Lord, I'm up at 3.15. Is there something you want to say to me? Is there something I need to pray about? Is there something you want to speak to me 
that can happen now because during the day, maybe I got so much going on in my mind and it's here and I'm thinking about this and I'm answering the phone and I'm working over here, or I'm doing that. And, and at three in the morning, it's pretty quiet. Not much going on, right? And sometimes you can communicate in a way that is easier for us to grasp than, than it is during the day. But that and so much more of that dynamic relationship that he wants to have with us. Because it is hour by hour. It's one dinner at a time or a breakfast in the morning or, you know, meeting up with this person or, you know, at, at the grocery store or whatever it is you might want to use this for whatever reason and whatever place we might have find ourselves. And we always want to be open to that. And you guys know what it's like, right? When we're used by the Lord and we see His hand working and He put something together and, you know, we were faithful in doing it, there's just... There's hardly a greater, you know, sense of joy and, and satisfaction that we can have when we know we're being used by the Lord in a situation and we see Him working. It's just, there's hardly anything better in this life. And, uh, you know, it's just such an exciting and rewarding and satisfying and awesome thing to see. And, uh, you know, again, we should always be those that desire more of that and realize that's the way He wants to work. As we see happening here in the story of Esther. Well, let's pray and we'll, we'll pick it up at what happens in the dinner next time. Father, we do thank you again for reminding us through a, a simple story of Esther, these important concepts and principles that you have for us, Lord. May we just be those faithful and willing to answer the call when you see fit in what circumstances, and we can have that assurance that you've led us and you guide us, and you take care of us, and you're always working in and through us. And you know everything that's going on in our lives. You're, you're involved in a very intimate and personal way in each one of our lives as your children, beyond, I think, what we can even comprehend. And we thank you for it, Lord. And we just ask, Lord, you'd help us to have willing and open hearts to be available and being willing to... Uh, follow your lead and answer your call, Lord. At the end of the day, Lord, it's something that just is rewarding and satisfying and such a blessing, Lord. And we get such a, I think, a taste of heaven when that happens, Lord. And so may we desire more of that, Lord, and help us to be faithful. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. May the Lord bless you.